Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special bonus program of our COVID-19 edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. Today's program is the fourth in our five-part series, COVID at Work Straight Talk. And in this group of shows, we've assembled expert lawyers from across the country. They're helping us sift through the challenges facing businesses today as they move through the difficulties of getting back to the way things were or probably more accurately, how business leaders are going to navigate through the challenges of the new normal life of business. Throughout the series, we've got panels of experts on topics ranging from health and safety and OSHA to sensitive landlord-tenant discussions, dealing with business interruption insurance and how to substantiate and document claims as a result of the current situation. We've also got two groups together that are going to address employee benefits and retirement plans, And finally, look straight on at how bankruptcy is being addressed, not only as it relates to the challenges we may be having in our own business's long-term viability, but how to work through this situation when it pertains to our vendors, clients, and customers who are also struggling financially from the impact of the pandemic. Today's program will center on the topic of how to address challenges dealing with employee benefits and retirement plans. As a bonus, we had the chance to survey some of our listening audience in advance gather their questions, and we'll be sharing those with our panel in the commentary. So let's jump in and meet our panel. Our presenters today are experts in the field. Joining us from Steptoe & Johnson is Jamie Leary. From Bond, Shenick & King, John Godso. From Baker Donaldson, Andrea Powers. From Locke Lord, Lori Basilico. And from Parker Poe, Adams & Bernstein, Michelle Vaness. So I'm going to toss the ball over to our friends on the health and welfare side first and have Jamie take the ball from there. Jamie, welcome to the program. The audience is yours. Thank you so much, Pete. I'm glad to be here. We do have a lot of material to cover. As you all know, there have been a number of changes in this area, and and so we're going to do our best to present um, very timely information for you. But in this area, the first key for success is don't overlook the basics. The primary tenant of ERISA is that the plan document governs. And so if you change the terms of your plan, you need to amend your plan document. Notify participants and beneficiaries, and from an operational perspective, coordinate in advance with your insurance carriers and third-party administrators. Now, during the COVID era, we've seen changes primarily in two areas. Early on, we saw employers placing employees on furlough, and by that we mean an unpaid leave of absence where the employment relationship is not severed, who wanted to continue their employees' coverage while they were out on furlough. And that's an area where you can clearly see why you need to coordinate in advance with insurance carriers in particular. And for those of you with self-insured plans, that doesn't mean that you don't have to do that. It it means instead you need to think about your stop-loss coverage terms. Coordinate in advance with them and to the extent that you are wanting to be more generous to your employees than the insurance policies provide, you need to negotiate an extension of coverage and get that agreement in writing so that you won't find yourself later on accidentally to have self-insured. But we are also seeing changes in coverage. So the FFCRA, the Family First Coronavirus Response Act, and the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, require group health plans to cover testing for COVID-19 as well as the visit in which the test was ordered or administered. 
Visit for this purpose includes an office visit, an emergency room visit, urgent care, or telehealth. The other change that's required for group health plans to cover is preventive services. Um, now, once we get a vaccine or similar type of product that might help people not contract COVID-19, and once those are approved by either the CDC or the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, within 15 business days of that approval, group health plans must cover those preventive services. And both types of those changes must be covered without any participant cost sharing, meaning no co-pays, co-insurance, or deductibles. No pre-approval can be required, and no medical management techniques can be applied. And those types of mandatory changes under the FFCRA and CARES Act apply to a broad swath of plans, including employer-sponsored plans, governmental plans, and church plans, and both whether they are grandfathered or non-grandfathered, of course, a term that we discuss in terms of ACA compliance. There are other permissive changes, but I want to make sure that you're clear on the mandatory changes. With respect to changes either in terms of the benefits coverage for folks out on furlough or the coverage changes that are mandatory or permissive under the new laws, again, we go back to the basics. Coordinating in advance with your insurance carriers or TPA, amending your plan document and doing so with an amendment signed by someone who has appropriate corporate authority and notifying participants and beneficiaries. And here I want to also note that traditionally we have ERISA guidelines that, pardon me, regulations that would indicate by when participants and beneficiaries must be notified of changes. It's important to note that we have relief in this area. The DOL in EBSA Disaster Relief Notice 2020-01 provides that an ERISA plan and fiduciary will not be held in violation of ERISA for failure to issue a notice, as in a summary of material modifications when you've amended your plan, if that would have been required between March 1st, 2020 and 60 days after the end, the announced end of the COVID-19 national emergency. And that's a time period that's going to be very important to be aware of. It's called the outbreak period. To the extent that it would have been required in the outbreak period, but is instead delivered at a time that would be past the typical deadline, that's not a violation of ERISA, provided that the plan and the fiduciary are acting in good faith and the notice is furnished as soon as administratively practicable under the circumstances. So if you've amended your plan's terms but you have not yet issued SMMs, we would urge you to Finish those required actions. Have your plan amended and get out an SNM as soon as possible and seek to fit within that relief period. Now, the relief also does cover more than just SMMs. Under a final rule issued by the IRS and the DOL, that same outbreak period-based relief applies to a participant's exercise of HIPAA special enrollment rights, a deadline to file a claim or appeal, or a deadline to request an external review or to perfect such a request. And importantly, the relief does not apply to plan administrators adjudicating claims and appeals. So it protects the participants and beneficiaries in terms of meeting their deadlines 
in claims practice, it does not apply to you as a plan administrator. The practical result meaning that there is likely to be no late special enrollments, claims, or appeals for the foreseeable future. And a tip to note for yourself is that if you have a health FSA where you would typically apply a use it or lose it rule at the end of your plan year, make sure that you take into account this outbreak period um, and the relief that it provides before you forfeit health FSA account balances. Now we also want to make sure the second key for success is understanding your COBRA obligations and the potential pitfalls associated therewith. Many of you, I am sure, are very familiar with COBRA administration and understand that the rules and deadlines in that area are an incredibly important part of administering COBRA. There are a lot of rules. However, 2020 COBRA administration is going to look different from previous years. Briefly, if a, a covered employee or an enrolled family member experiences a COBRA qualifying event, they or the employer, depending on the event, must notify the plan administrator. And the plan administrator has a deadline to issue a COBRA notice. Qualified beneficiaries generally have 60 days to decide whether to exercise their right to elect COBRA, generating another deadline. Qualified beneficiaries then have 45 days to make their first premium payment, which is another deadline. And then their payments of COBRA premiums thereafter each create separate deadlines, their grace period rules, etc. But all of those deadlines that I just highlighted are included within the outbreak period relief under the DOL and IRS final rule. And so this is a mandatory change that applies across the board in COBRA administration. As a practical result, it significantly increases adverse selection risk. Qualified beneficiaries do not have to elect COBRA or make COBRA premium payments for many more months than would typically apply. They can wait and see whether their claims costs are sufficiently high to warrant payment of the COBRA premiums on their personal level. It also causes concerns regarding claims administration. Treasury regs that have been in existence since the early 2000s generally permit coverage to be pended and then reinstated retroactively once a timely election and premium payment occur. But if this is going to be a period of many more months, it really raises questions as to who's going to be left holding the bag if claims are covered and then premium payments aren't made, or whether providers will be willing to wait until the, time, the timely election and premium payments occur after the announced end of the COVID-19 national emergency which, by the way, hasn't occurred yet. So we haven't even begun to run the 60-day clock that occurs after the announced end of the COVID-19 national emergency, much less the deadlines that are told while that clock is running. You may also have contractual limitations with your TPAs or insurance carriers as to how far back you can retroactively reinstate someone's coverage. Also, another aspect of this, and these are things that we've gotten a lot of questions about, so I've, I've tried to work, work some of the answers into what we're presenting with you. Um, it's unclear whether there's a duty to notify participants and beneficiaries of the extended deadlines. 
the final rule itself does not contain any statement of a duty to do so. And it is important to recognize that it's difficult to clearly communicate an extended deadline to a participant when you can't help them by calculating the eventual deadline. So until we reach the announced end of the COVID-19 national emergency, you're describing a rule, but you're not able to apply the rule for them, which then also raises a question as to whether you should generate a notice once you're able to establish the final deadlines and communicate those to your participants and beneficiaries. These are questions that are not addressed in the guidance, but it is noteworthy that the Department of Labor issued an updated model COBRA notice the same week as the final rules issuance, and it does not contain any description of the extended COBRA deadlines. I know that's a lot of information, and yet we have more to present with you. So, John, would you like to, uh, to continue with the keys to success on the welfare plan area? Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jamie. So we'll quickly move on to key to success number three in the welfare plan area, which is be prepared to address any mid-year cafeteria election plan change requests. So as Jamie mentioned, we really tried to focus this presentation on the initial questions that we received from you all in order to kind of focus this uh, with respect to your concerns. Um, so many of you may have been getting questions regarding mid-year cafeteria plan elections. And as many of you know, these rules are, or these changes are really subject to strict and often inflexible rules. Um, often you're making an election a year, uh, you'll be making an election the prior year before it comes into place. Um, and that election will, will hold for 12 months, for example, for all, throughout the whole 2020 plan year. So safe to say an election that you made back in, or your participants made back in November of 19 may have made good sense for them at that time, but may not be in their best interest in May of 2020 or throughout 2020. So this is an area that we've received recent guidance on, but let's first go back and just talk about the general rules with respect to pre-tax elections, many of which you may be familiar with. In general, your pre-tax elections on your cafeteria plan may not be changed unless there is a permissible mid-year change event under IRS regulations, and the plan allows them uh, that change as well, and most do. So for example, you may be used to allowing changes with respect to special enrollment rights, change in family statuses, cost changes, et cetera. So certainly COVID-19 turned everything on its head, I think, and people or many of the clients we work, work with have participants asking, hey, can we change these elections now that my circumstances are much different? So we've heard a lot of questions like, I have reduced pay and can't afford my high option plan. Can I switch that plan? Or I have reduced hours, but I haven't lost eligibility under my health FSA. Can I discontinue that coverage? Or I can't schedule a doctor's appointment anymore due to COVID-19, so I want to reduce my health FSA election, or I want to change my group health plan option to a cheaper, less expensive option. And in general, in most circumstances, prior to this most recent guidance, the answer was typically no, we couldn't make those type of changes under the current guidance from the IRS. Enter notice, IRS notice 2020-29, which is issued about uh, 10 days ago. And this notice now allows uh, plan sponsors to change most election rules, at least for the year of 2020. Uh, so this notice covers a lot of ground, but I'm gonna limit to just hit on the highlights as it pertains to election changes. So really in 2020, the IRS temporarily threw away the, the rule book that would normally apply with respect to mid-year changes with respect to the following types of plans. For your group health plans, 
now under the new rules for 2020 again, these can allow prospective changes uh, if someone initially declined coverage. So for example, if someone didn't enroll in your plan in an open enrollment that occurred back in November of 19, you can have a special open enrollment period in 2020 to allow them to make that change. You can also allow a prospective election change with respect to moves within your own company plan. So for example, if someone uh, originally elected the low coverage option, they can now be permitted to change to a high option mid-year without a usual uh, change in status event occurring, or someone could go from single coverage to family coverage, for example. You can also allow a prospective election to revoke your coverage or a participant to revoke their coverage if they can certify that they're immediately covered by some other group health plan option. So those are the three that relate to the group health plans. FSAs are also changed, both health and dependent care. You can have a prospective change with respect to your health FSA or de dependent care plan to start, stop, increase, or decrease elections. Um, so that's an option that you have with respect to your health FSAs and dependent cares. You can also have an extended grace period provided that grace period ends in 2020. So for example, many of you may have grace periods with respect to your health FSA, FSAs or dependent care FSAs that ends on in March, uh, mid-March. You can extend that under these rules up until the end of 2020 until December 31, 2020. So claims could continue to be incurred in 2020 and be reimbursable based on your elections that you made in 2019. I also mentioned another notice that came out at the same time as notice 2020-29, which allows for those uh, plans that have a carryover uh, rather than a grace period for those health FSAs, that you can now, those amounts are now indexed up to 550. Uh, the rule previously was $500, so you can carry over from plan year 2020 to plan year 2021 an additional $50. So when we look at this as the big picture takeaways, they're certainly helpful for participants. They provide more flexibility, but for plan sponsors, uh, we have raised potential costs and administration issues that need to be considered carefully. We are seeing, uh, one question we may see are, are these uh, optional or required changes. These all are optional changes. You do not, you are not required to adopt these changes. And you also pick and choose which changes you'd like to adopt. Uh, you don't have to do them wholesale. Certainly there's some considerations when deciding whether to make these uh, cafeteria plan changes because they are optional. We see some practical considerations. Are your employees actually asking for these changes? You're also gonna have to coordinate with your TPAs and carriers to be able to implement these changes. Uh, one, Con to think about is the possibility of adverse selection where folks are picking and choosing when they want to enter a particular coverage option based on when they may be experiencing higher medical costs. Uh, so you really want to think about limiting the number of changes to reduce the potential for adverse selection. But on the pro side, certainly they're participant friendly. If you want to implement them, they will get you some goodwill. They will, with respect to your FSAs, decrease the likelihood of having forfeitures and allow people to incur additional uh, medical expenses during 2020 that may be covered based on their prior elections. So that's key to success number three. Key to success number four, let's not forget about our Affordable Care Act implications. Um, at the risk of oversimplifying, we did at the initially have the poll where I see about 77% uh, are what we call applicable large employers. So this would be applicable for you all. Um, Really what we want to focus on here quickly is just the employer shared responsibility rules. Again, just to give you a quick overview, and many of you know this, in order to avoid 
uh, potential penalties under those rules. You have to offer qualifying qualifying coverage to at least 95% of your full-time employees. And you also have to offer affordable coverage to those full-time employees. And as many of you know, that full-time employee standard is based on a 30-hour week standard or 130 hours uh, for the month. Um, there are two ways to measure full-time employee status, either a look-back period, or basically you look to the prior year and determine whether you, the individual satisfy the 30-hour week, 130-hour month standard, or the month-to-month period. For those who use the look-back period, we are seeing some issues with respect to discrepancies in your plan documents versus who's considered a full-time employee under the ACA. So for example, if you are looking at a, using a look-back period, the determination of ACA full-time status for 2020 will be determined based on their hours that occurred during some measurement period that ended in 2019 for those who have uh, plan year plans or plan year measurement periods. So if you're using look back period, you might have a situation where someone's considered a full-time employee under the ACA, but your plan documents say they might not be eligible because they have reduced hours because they're on a furlough or have um, reduced hours due to, to changes in your personnel. So when you have that inconsistency and you drop the individual's coverage, you might have a situation where you'd be subject to a, an Affordable Care Act penalty. Because if you offer them COBRA, it's very likely that COBRA coverage will not be considered affordable. Um, and therefore, if that individual goes out to the exchange and obtains a premium tax credit on the exchange, you could be in a situation where uh, you might be subject to a Affordable Care Act uh, penalty for a family to offer affordable coverage. So. What do we need to do in this situation? Certainly for the ACA uh, and the big picture takeaways, we want to understand what measurement period method you're using. If you're using the look back period, you might end up in this situation where you have a discrepancy between the terms of your plan and who's considered a full-time employee. So you want to look at the plan documents regarding your eligibility provisions to understand that. Um, and if there is a discrepancy, be prepared uh, to understand that you might be in a penalty position and perhaps take action to address that. For example, we know many employers now are working with their insurers com insurance companies and stop loss carriers, as Jamie mentioned, to extend coverage. If you extend coverage under a plan where normally someone would lose coverage as a result of being on a furlough or reduced hours, that could give you some relief with respect to a potential ACA penalty. Also, on the COBRA side, if you offer subsidized COBRA to an individual, that can provide you with some relief for the ACA penalty to the extent that that subsidized COBRA may be considered a affordable coverage offer. Um, you also always have the option when you're looking at this to consider whether the costs outweigh the benefits for, for providing some type of affordable health care uh, coverage. The penalty right now for those um, violations are about $321 per month. It may be more costly to carry those folks and subsidize their insurance than the potential penalty that you have uh, for failing to offer affordable coverage. I will say you always want to keep your eye on the ball with respect to uh, the 95% coverage issue. You know, we want to make sure that we're always offering qualifying coverage to at least 95% of our full-time employees because that can result in uh, extensive penalties under the ACA. So that's our ACA part. Our, our final uh, 
key is today's rules may no longer be applicable tomorrow. Regularly check for that new guidance. When we initially talked about this seminar about a month ago, we all said we're not quite sure exactly what we're gonna be talking about because the rules changed, and certainly they have. Uh, periodically check in with your ELA benefits attorney, check the resources, all the attorneys are here today, their firms regularly issue information memos, it will be helpful to you. And also both the IRS and DOL websites will contain information that might be helpful to you as well as far as new changes in the law. And Peter, those are our five keys to success. I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Wow, that was a that was a whirlwind, Jamie and John. Thanks so much. And gang, I know we had lots of questions. We got a lot in advance, and we've gotten a lot since the call started. Just to make sure we get the valuable content to you, I'm going to hold questions till the end. Our presenters can see them. Some of them are being answered in the background. So if you have a pressing question, feel free to add it to Q&A. If I can ask our presenters, take a look at those. If we can help with a direct question, please do. But let's jump over to the other side of the fence, and let's talk about the impact on retirement plans during the COVID-19 crisis I'm going to toss the ball to our friend Andrea Powers, who's going to lead that side of the discussion. Andrea, take it away. Thanks, Peter. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Andrea Powers, and between myself, Lori Basilico, and Michelle Vanessa, uh, the three of us are going to speak to you about retirement benefits focusing on tax-qualified retirement plans, as well as executive compensation benefits, particularly focusing on code section 409A. We're gonna talk about uh, four different um, topics related to all of this recent COVID-19 legislation. We're gonna look at the CARES Act and briefly review with you uh, distributions and loan provisions that were changed under that law. Uh, then we're gonna turn it over to Lori, let her talk to you about the impact of furloughs and layoffs on your retirement plans. And Michelle will then uh, address some of our executive comp and 409A issues before we come back and try to talk about some cost containment measures. Uh, feel free to continue submitting your questions uh, as we speak, we'll try to work them in and hopefully we'll have time at the end. So let's talk about the first part of this, which is the CARES Act that came, that was um, initiated in March of this year. And in that CARES Act, we had uh, some changes to tax qualified retirement plans that were intended to provide individuals with some relief. The first of those major provisions was what we call the um, uh, coronavirus uh, COVID-19 distribution. Uh, this is a special distribution that is permissive, meaning that you as plan sponsors have the opportunity to choose to implement this or not. We know some of the providers out there, some of the record keepers and administrators jumped on this and kind of gave you a, a quick timeline to decide whether to adopt or not. If you have held off and have chosen not to adopt, you can certainly uh, change your mind and implement this later on as this uh, coronavirus crisis continues. So let's talk about what these distributions do. What they offer is basically a penalty-free distribution of up to $100,000 for qualified individuals. Uh, and these are for distributions taken from the period beginning January 1, 2020 
through December 31, 2020. So these dates, unlike with our health and welfare benefits where we're in a, a narrower time frame, here for these uh, corona-related distributions, uh, we have the entire calendar year 2020. So it's up to $100,000, but uh, these are only available to qualified individuals. And those people who are considered qualified and eligible for these would be your plan participants if that participant has been diagnosed with COVID-19 or has a spouse or dependent who's been diagnosed with COVID-19 or if that particular plan participant has experienced some type of adverse financial consequences due to COVID-19, such as quarantine, layoff, furlough, reduction in hours, inability to work because of childcare. What's interesting to note is that so far in the guidance Treasury's put out on this, there has not been an expansion of the definition of qualified individual to include someone, who, a participant whose spouse has had an adverse financial circumstance. So for example, if the employees continued to work, the plan participants continued to work, has not been laid off or had a reduction in hours and has not otherwise been diagnosed with or had a family member diagnosed with COVID-19, then even if that participant's spouse, let's say, has been laid off or furloughed, that would not be sufficient to make that plan participant a qualified individual. So, so far, um, the Treasury's not expanded that definition. Uh, one of the very interesting benefits of this definition is that Participants who take these distributions have up to 36 months, three years to uh, pay taxes on that distribution. And uh, the, the participants can also repay those amounts to the plan. Uh, and if they repay those amounts to the plan, then the repaid amounts are not taxable income. So these have been um, utilized by a lot of employers, particularly those that were doing uh, lots of layoffs. Those of you that have not had to engage in the layoffs or furloughs may not have wanted to opt into this type of distribution. Uh, that's one of kind of the two major parts of the CARES Act changes for retirement plans. The other particularly large portion deals with um, looking at uh, loans. And when the statute was issued, a lot there was a lot of confusion over whether some of these provisions were mandatory or optional. Uh, the subsequent Treasury guidance has told us that the plan loan provisions are also optional, that as plan sponsors, you're not required to implement these, although you may choose to do so. And what the plan loan changes have done is increase the maximum amount of loans that can be taken out from the $50,000 cap and has raised that to a $100,000 cap uh, for participants. Uh, so it's the, the lesser of $100,000 or 100% of the participants vested account balance. And this is for loans that are made beginning March 27th, 2020 through 
September 22nd, 2020. Uh, so these loans um, uh, amounts can be increased. In addition to an increase in the dollar amount of loans available under these plans, uh, there's also an um, permissive suspension of repayments. And again, we've got lots of dates with these new changes in the law. And these dates state that if a loan is outstanding on March 27th, 2020, then the due date for any repayment between March 27th and December 31, 2020 can be delayed for up to one year. Uh, there will have to be interest on that uh, delayed repayment, but that's going to allow for uh, a delay in the repayment of the loan. So typically, you know, once a loan is set up, you have the repayment period. The loan has to typically be repaid within five years, and you have a, have a set amortization period, and you don't get to change that. The CARES Act changes that for uh, plan loans permissively, so employers are allowed to adopt that. The final point I want to bring up with the CARES Act before I move on to Lori is to mention uh, required minimum distributions. Again, this is um, uh, sort of at really at the option of the um, participant here, but we know that when participants reach um, age 70 and a half, um, if that participant has stopped working or is a 5% or greater owner of the business, then that person has to begin receiving required minimum distributions, which is basically a, a, an account, an amount based upon their life expectancy um, and in those number of years divided into their uh, plan benefit. And that amount has to come out each year. Uh, the RMDs for this year have been suspended uh, permissively. It's not uh, an automatic stay, if you will, but rather that it uh, uh, is generally going to be left up to the participant to decide that. So if you've got um, someone who's getting ready to start an RMD for the first time, it's probably good uh, counsel to reach out to that person and find out if he or she wants their uh, RMD suspended for the year. For someone already in pay status, someone who's already used to taking the RMDs, uh, we certainly would advise you not to just stop that without uh, getting the consent and approval because that may have already been factored into their annual living expenses. So those are just highlights of these retirement plan changes under the CARES Act. Now I'm going to move this over to Lori and let her focus on the impact of layoffs and furloughs on your retirement plans. Lori? Well, thank you, Andrea. Um, very interesting um, about the CARES Act distribution. So I'm going to generally talk about how do layoffs and furloughs impact retirement plans. So uh, first off, we have to understand the difference between a furlough and a layoff. So Jamie touched on this earlier in her presentation, but generally a layoff is considered a termination of employment, not for any performance-related cause or for which the employee holds any blame, and in most cases with a layoff, there is no explicit understanding that the employee will come back to work in the foreseeable future. With a furlough, however, employees do have an expectation that they will return to work with the employer at some time in the future. So you can think of a furlough as a mandatory temporary leave of absence that the employer imposes onto the employee. 
um, from which the employee is expected to return from work or to be restored from a reduced um, work schedule. So with that in mind, um, you know, can, you know, one question that, that I've received a lot of is that can furloughed employees take a distribution from a retirement plan? So as I said, furloughed employees aren't terminated, so they continue to be active participants in the retirement plan. Because they're not terminated, they can't take a termination distribution from the plan. But if the plan allows, they can take in-service withdrawals um, from the plan, or they can take a hardship withdrawal if the plan offers it, or they can take a participant loan. So uh, as Andrea mentioned, um, the CARES Act distributions, the in-service withdrawals, don't allow for the the 59 and a half early distribution penalties and they have some other provisions um, with respect to helping the employee deal with the taxes on that but if your plan um, didn't if you didn't adopt that provision then um, you know the the if the plan has the in-service withdrawal then the participant can take that it's very important that employers um, and their record keepers make sure that a furloughed employee isn't treated as terminated and mistakenly allow them to take a distribution from the plan. Doing this may be an operational failure that the IRS will require the employer to correct by restoring the distributed amount from the plan. If the employer can't recover the amount from the employee, the employer may be on the hook for restoring the improperly distributed amount from, uh, to the plan. Um, another question we've been asked is, um, how will uh, participant loans be affected if you're on furlough or layoff? Um, if the employer, again, doesn't adopt the loan suspension offered by the CARES Act, furloughed and laid-off employees may end up defaulting on outstanding balances of the loans if they are unable to make their regularly, regularly scheduled loan repayments. Um, and this is particularly um, uh, for furloughed employees where repayments are made by payroll deduction and they're not being paid at the time, or uh, for the laid-off employees, if the termination of employment automatically accelerates the default. Uh, many plans provide for a cure period uh, to allow time for a participant to make up missed payments before the defaulted loan balance is treated as a taxable distribution. And I encourage you to, uh, to figure out what your, loan, uh, your cure period is. The, uh, in, uh, the IRS allows for the maximum cure period being the end of the calendar quarter following the calendar quarter in which the missed payment was made. Um, and so, you know, to assist your employees who may have issues with their loans, um, you know, again, check your cure period. And if you provide a shorter cure period than the maximum permitted, um, you could consider amending your plan to extend the cure period um, to the maximum allow uh, allowable time frame or to allow for repayment after termination of employment through ACH or manual check. Um, you should coordinate with your record keeper to make sure that they can accommodate these changes, but it's just something to think about um, with respect to loans. Um, one additional loan delay provision that was in a notice that the IRS had issued earlier in April, it's notice 2020-23, it basically allows for any uh, 401k loan payments um, uh, that are due between April 1st and July 14th to be delayed. Um, but unlike the CARES Act, this is only a delay and it's not, um, it's not a suspension. And so that come July 15th, all repayments, um, missed payments would be required to be made. 
Um, other things, other compliance issues that employers should watch for with respect to furloughed and uh, laid-off employees are partial plan terminations. Um, when a plan is partially terminated, employees who have been affected um, who are not fully vested in their be plan benefits must become fully vested. Uh, determining whether a plan is partially terminated is a facts and circumstances test, but generally speaking, if more than 20% of plan participants are laid off in an applicable period, um, a partial plan termination could exist. The applicable period um, will vary depending upon the fact situation and can span across multiple years if there are a series of related um, layoffs. If not, it's generally looked at during the plan year. So this is something that you will, again, will want to coordinate with your service providers to ensure that vesting is properly credited. If you feel that you've had a plan, partial plan termination, again, it's a very facts and um, circumstances test, so you should consult with your with your benefits attorney to see um, whether one has uh, occurred um, if you've had a series of layoffs. Um, other things that you should think about is um, with these, these economic challenges, um, you may not be focusing on timely just depositing your employee contributions into the plan. Those are the elective deferrals and loan repayments. Um, the Department of Labor requires that an employer remit employee contributions on the earliest date on which such amounts can be segregated from the employer's general assets. If you have a small plan with fewer than 100 participants, there's a safe harbor rule that allows deposits to be timely if they are deposited within seven days of the pay date. Uh, the Department of Labor recently issued guidance to relax this timely remittance requirement for employees but only if or the, the delay results solely, and I emphasize the word solely, from a failure attributable to COVID-19 during the time period um, from March 1st, 2020 through the 60, 60th day following the announced end of the COVID national emergency. This relief is limited in scope and is primarily focused on administrative hardships that are beyond the reasonable control of the employer. For example, if your entire payroll department is furloughed and you can't do payroll, then you could most likely take advantage of this rule. It does not give employers the freedom to address adverse changes in cash flow by holding participant funds in the general assets. So employers should continue to deposit employee contributions to the plan as soon as practicable. Um, if you can't do this, um, if, you know, because of the COVID emergency, we recommend that you document the existence of the, the emergency. Um, and, how, and how the um, employee contributions were deposited to the plan as soon as the issue was resolved. If you uh, determine that they weren't, that the employee contributions were not deposited in a timely manner, after considering the Department of Labor Relief, um, you may consider, you know, perhaps voluntary correcting these errors through the department's voluntary fiduciary correction period. And then lastly, with respect to the layoffs and furloughs, um, if your plan has a thousand hour of service requirement for, for um, uh, receiving the employer contribution, furloughs may prevent employees from completing the thousand hours. So you just want to make sure that, you know, you're counting hours correctly to determine, uh, you know, who's eligible for the contribution or not. And that also may impact your non-discrimination testing if you have a significant number of employees. Uh, if you have a thousand hour requirement and a significant number of employees who, who may not receive that contribution. Um, I'm going to turn this over to Michelle to talk about some executive comp concerns. Thank you, Laurie. So I'm going to take just a few minutes 
to talk to you about uh, Code Section 409A, and I, I'm, I'm sure this section is familiar to some of you, but maybe not to all of you. This is really not just about executive compensation, although it was targeted for executive compensation. It covers much more than executive compensation. It covers everything going from deferral of pay, which you may be tempted to uh, implement in, in these particular times to defer some payments of wages. Uh, bonuses can be covered. Severance can be covered. And also, of course, that is correct, uh, executive compensation itself, like supplemental retirement and the like. Uh, I, I'm going to uh, ask that everyone try to keep a smile on as I deliver my speech, because the tone is about to change, unfortunately. Uh, you've heard a lot of uh, positive changes and added flexibility uh, on the health side, on the retirement side, to make sure that the workforce stays healthy to make sure that the participants in plants have access to their own savings. This is all uh, laudable efforts. In this area, unfortunately, nothing has changed uh, uh, practically, and 409A is likely to not be your friend if you're trying to change things that are currently underway. Uh, 409A governs deferred comp, and uh, it is it was adopted because of a suspicion that taxpayers, both employers and employees, are out there tweaking the timing of when they declare income to their advantage. And so the IRS has imposed very strict rules about documentation in terms of when things are deferred and when they vest and when they are paid. And everything should be documented. And after that documented, uh, generally, payments cannot be accelerated. So first, uh, it is possible that some of, or, or, or many of you will be tackling with the question of can we pay people earlier? Uh, unfortunately, these plans are less friendly than the hardship contribution, uh, distribution and withdrawals from qualified plans. Uh, you need to be dealing with a, quote, unforeseeable emergency, which this to some extent can be, but uh, you really have to be careful before deciding to uh, give people uh, more money. Similarly, uh, deferral elections, uh, of course, could be changed in 401k plans. Any employee can decide today, I'm no longer deferring in my 401k plan. Not true again in those executive compensation arrangements, typically deferral elections are fixed for the year and, and cannot be changed in general. Uh, so again, be careful about that. And some arrangements that you might think are not covered here can become covered. If you're, for example, delaying payments of certain bonuses, you may inadvertently enter the world of 409A where maybe before you were not in the world of 409A. Even deferring wages uh, may yield uh, a 409A deferred comp plan unbeknownst to you. And the problem is that those need to be documented. So my message to everyone, and I'm going to stop there after this, is when you are exiting the world of health plans and 401K plans and other qualified plans, 
and you are looking at the rest of your benefits, performance-based pay, even equity-based compensation, and certainly executive arrangements, including employment agreements, just know that you have entered into less friendly waters, that really nothing has been made more flexible for you. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, you really need to be careful about what you try to do, uh, even if it makes sense from a business standpoint, the tax laws may get in the way. Uh, it is difficult with the time we have to give you specific examples, but I, I hope with this message you will realize that the world of deferred comp, bonuses, performance-based pay, executive deferrals, and all that, you must be thinking about this a little differently from when you're trying to contemplate and implement changes in, in the health plans and in uh, qualified plans. And I'm going to stop there. Great. Thanks, Michelle. That's wonderful. Well, folks, we are closing in on our, on our top of the hour, but we have tons of questions and a lot of content to go. So I hope you'll stick with us. Uh, we'll probably run about 10 minutes over. So please stay with us. I'm going to give the ball back to Andrea Powers to finish up the retirement plans piece. Thank you, Peter. Uh, we were going to finish up the retirement plan piece with probably one of the most, I think, um, interesting and uh, full of questions issue on the retirement side, and that is how can employers contain cost? Uh, for obvious reasons, our businesses are trying to look at cost-cutting measures, how can we meet budget? And so they look at their retirement plans and think, what can we do? So Lori, if you could uh, address a question we have, which is uh, when it comes to cost containment, can an employer reduce or suspend their matching contributions? Is that permitted or advisable? Right, so thanks, Andrea. So um, yes. An employer can suspend their matching uh, contribution or even their non-elective contributions. And the issues here depend on the terms of the plan, including whether the contribution is intended to be a safe harbor contribution or not. If it is a safe harbor contribution, there are more rules than if it's not a safe harbor contribution. So let me just briefly explain what a safe harbor contribution is. Uh, employer contributions to a 401k plan can be structured to satisfy a safe harbor design that automatically satisfies the non-discrimination tests, which are the ACP and the ADP test. Um, the safe harbor contributions generally must remain in effect for the entire plan year, except that a company may reduce or suspend these contributions mid-year if the safe harbor notice that em employer is required to send on an annual basis to employees in the plan or participants in the plan include a statement that the company reserved the ability to reduce or suspend the contributions mid-year and the reduction and su or suspension won't apply until at least 30 days after all participants receive notice of the reduction or the suspension or the second reason that an employee, a company can reduce or suspend the contributions is if the company is operating under an economic loss which generally requires that the employer and all related employers in the same control group show that its expenses exceed income for the year. 
So if you meet these requirements um, and you want to suspend the or or uh, reduce the the safe harbor contribution, there are a few additional steps that you need to meet before you can do that. Um, you must the participants must receive a supplemental notice explaining the change at least 30 days prior to the date that the change will be effective. The participants must have a reasonable opportunity prior to the change to modify their deferral elections. A plan amendment must be adopted before the change is effective. And any con company contributions must be made for periods prior to the effective date of the amendment. So if you do all of those, you can, you can suspend or reduce your safe harbor match. Um, but one thing that you need to be concerned about is that if you do that, then you're automatically subject to non-discrimination testing for the entire uh, plan year. And you could also be subject to top-heavy testing. So that means that the ACP ADP test uh, will need to be run, and that may impact um, how much uh, that, that you're highly compensated receive, um, you know, in a match and/or their elective deferral. Particularly if the um, the tests fail and you have to return contributions or forfeit contributions on behalf of the highly compensated. Um, if you have a non-safe harbor plan, you have a little more flexibility to reduce or suspend the contribution. There's generally no 30-day notice, as you have under the safe harbor, but you should review your plan documents to see if there are any restrictions on suspending or reducing contributions. A plan amendment will be necessary there if there is a fixed contribution formula. And depending on the plan terms, um, an amendment may be made, made prospectively, meaning that from the date of the amendment and going backwards, you may owe contributions, um, employer contributions to the, um, to the employees. Um, for a discretionary contribution, um, most likely there's not a plan amendment necessary, but you should, again, review your plan documents just to make sure that there's no amendment and or um, employee notice requirement uh, necessary for doing that. Um, and, you know, as I said, under for the safe harbor contributions, any change on your matching contribution could impact your non-discrimination testing. Um, if, you, if you suspend or reduce your match, this could result in a decrease in contributions for your non-highly compensated employees because they're no longer receiving a match, so they don't want to uh, put in any money on their own. Um, so that, uh, again, you may fail the non-discrimination test as a result of this. So you should, um, you should uh, sort of think about that and think about how you're going to socialize that with your highly compensated if they're going to uh, receive money back as a result of this. Um, so that's really sort of the cost containment measures. Um, I think then Thanks. I'll hand it back to Peter, who can go through some questions. Andrew, did you have any questions uh, left on your list? Because I've got a ton. So let me know if you've got anything else. Otherwise, I'm going to jump in. Well, thanks, Peter. I did have a question pop up. It actually popped up on the screen and one that I probably should have clarified when I was going over the CARES Act provisions. And what plans do these CARES Act provisions apply to? These apply to tax-qualified retirement plans, which would be your 401k plans, profit sharing plans. They can uh, also apply to 403B plan. So if you are a not-for-profit entity or government with a 403B plan, then these rules apply there as well. And wanted to make that clear for, for our discussion. Great. Thank you for that. Another question came up on the retirement side. Then we're going to jump back to Jamie and John. So again, get ready for that. They do want to know what 
if you can uh, clarify the plan benefit document update requirement. It looks like it has a temporary through 1231-20 modification, but uh, can you just kind of fill us in if there's any further modification or is there going to be a, a, an extension to that? Let us know what's going on there. Sure. Well, uh, typically, whenever there's a change in uh, the law, you have a period of time when the plan sponsor can operate in compliance with that law. And that's usually different from when the plan document actually has to be amended in writing to reflect that change. And that's the case uh, with the CARES Act, that these retirement plan changes can be implemented operationally this year, but the written plan amendments are not going to be required until 2022. And by that time, we would fully expect to get some safe harbor uh, IRS uh, language for those amendments. Great. Speaking of IRS uh, language and guidance, I've got a question for our friend Jamie. Uh, Jamie, will the IRS issue guidance that permanently permits participants to receive telehealth coverage before satisfying their deductible in an HDHP plan. Can you uh, fill in our audience on the status of that? Certainly. That question actually um, is tied to one of the permissive changes. So under the CARES Act and IRS guidance, a high deductible health plan is permitted to offer benefits to participants before they've satisfied their deductible under the plan in a way that's typically not been permitted in the past. Um, one of those permissive changes is telehealth. So effective as early as January 1st, 2020, and continuing until the end of the plan year that begins on or before December 31st, 2020, or pardon me, yes, um, 2020, Telehealth visits can be covered even before the participant is satisfied their deductible under the plan. And those telehealth visits do not have to be particular to COVID-19. Um, so that is a piece of guidance that's permitted um, under the IRS and under the CARES Act. However, um, you have to bear in mind that that was permitted by the CARES Act. It has an ending date. We don't have a permanent piece of guidance yet, and um, I think we would need to see congressional action on that before the IRS would be able to permit it. Great. Thanks, Jamie. Michelle, I've got a question for you. Can employment contracts be legally amended to factor in salary and benefit reductions, withdrawals, and unpaid leaves as a result of the pandemic? Right. And it is an interesting question. Uh, that uh, certainly I should have mentioned uh, when I talked earlier today, employment agreements uh, have all kinds of provisions you need to be careful about when you start uh, trying to implement changes in pay, changes in bonuses, etc. First of all, employment agreements are, of course, you know, with one uh, employee, typically a highly paid. Uh, the first thing I would go read is the amendment section of uh, an employment agreement. They all have one. And usually they will say that uh, both parties need to agree to an amendment. So that, uh, of course, employment agreements can be amended, but it will be by uh, an amendment signed by both parties. So it will need to be negotiated. But in addition to that, I also want to say that you have to be careful about uh, protective uh, 
this provisions in employment agreement, like, for example, termination for good reason, uh, where an executive may be able to pull the chute and get the hefty severance if you do certain things as an employer. And one of the things that is typically listed is a reduction in base pay or uh, a, a reduction of comp and benefits as a whole subject to certain 409A requirements. And so when you're implementing those things company-wide, you may want to go check your employment agreements and, if needed, approach uh, the, the relevant employee or employees to tell them, uh, we're about to do this, we need your consent uh, to not trigger good reason. And, of course, that would amount to yet another amendment where the employee executive would effectively agree to amend the plan to say that this particular reduction in pay or benefit will be deemed not to constitute good reason. And uh, this better be documented because otherwise it, you know, the, the good reason trigger could be used. Um, other things, uh, e even more uh, uh, as a ripple effect, uh, depending on what you want to do for this executive or not, uh, obviously, severance pay is usually calculated based on a multiple of base pay and or bonus. Uh, the amendments might want to specify whether or not you want the reduction in pay to affect the severance package. Uh, again, maybe the answer is yes, and, and that should just be clarified. But if the answer is no, then you certainly need to say that the reduction in base pay and or bonus that she just went through because of the, of the COVID situation was not meant to affect severance. So there's in the world of employment agreements, there is a, a series of ripple effects that uh, you might want to document clearly to avoid interpretation issues down the road. That's that's great advice. Back to John. Uh, John, we got an interesting question here about employees on furlough. So how are employees handling salary deductions for health benefits during a furlough period? Well, we're seeing a, a few different approaches. One approach uh, that I'll just mention some, some cautionary issues with is paying the full premium for those individuals on furlough. I think mean, a lot of employers are thinking altruistically and paying the full boat uh, for, for some of their employees. If you're considering that, first of all, I know a number of, of the employers on the call have uh, self-funded plans. First of all, you got to think about non-discrimination issues with respect to highly compensated employees. So if you're just picking and choosing who you're paying the full premium for, uh, you have to watch out or be cognizant of those non-discrimination rules. Second, you want to check with your applicable carrier, if you're insured or your stop-loss carrier, if you're self-insured, just to see if there are any issues respect to those carriers for uh, taking that step, you know, because we're basically allowing folks to stay on maybe longer than they otherwise would have uh, if we weren't subsidizing those premiums. And finally, you may want to consider whether you're going to have an agreement with the employee such that they would repay those premiums um, if we're just going to cover them for a certain period of time. Um, you got to be concerned about state wage repayment laws and carefully craft that agreement if you're looking to recoup those amounts when individuals come back from furlough. So that's one thing that we're seeing with respect to employers making decisions to, to pay the full premium. Well, thanks very much to our panel today for all their insight. 
If our listening audience would like to connect with any of our lawyers on the program, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law. Just go to the big Find a Lawyer widget in the center of the page, click the drop-down box, choose your jurisdiction, and reach out directly to our lawyers by email or phone. Also, while you're on the website, sign up to receive invitations to upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to our on-demand content, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.